Yo, what's up, everybody? It's uh, Real Sankara Hours, your favorite black Marxist political podcast. Today is uh, Wednesday, October 27th, slash Thursday, October 28th. This is a bi-coastal podcast. Um, so on my yeah. end, it's 9 p.m. Pacific. We're, yes. It, well, you know, time isn't real anyway. So, no. um, yes, this, this podcast... Right now, it simultaneously exists in two different days. Yeah. Know. Yeah, so this is basically, yeah, late October 2000, to, to, 2021, 2021. Um, so, yeah, this is another free episode for Real Sankara Hours. And, um, you know, before we get on to our agenda, just, you know, average housekeeping to, to keep up to date with us and support us. Um, this is um, patron-funded. So to support us, patreon.com slash real hours for $5 a month, you get bonus episodes. Um, so basically extra content and, and actually some of that content is probably going to include some additional goodies like uh, music. So keep your, yeah. Keep, yeah, pay attention for that. So $5 a month gets you bonus episodes where we do theory readings, um, bonus interviews, deeper dives yeah we yeah we did a really good one um last week or i guess two weeks ago mm-hmm. uh about you know how we understand patriotism that, yes yeah that was that was a, i think a very substantive discussion so definitely worth checking out um yeah. it's yeah. it's good stuff uh you know honestly i think better content than you're gonna find around you know the left media sphere so uh, yeah i i agree yeah so five dollars a month gets you bonus content like that um anywhere between one dollar to one dollar to four dollars a month um is just like you know a kind uh sort of monthly donation you won't you won't get um bonus episodes you can also make a one-time donation to our paypal so paypal.me so paypal.me slash real sun car hours so Patreon.com slash real sun car hours and then paypal.me slash real sun car hours. That is how you can uh, financially support us, either by being a monthly patron or a one time donation. So, um, and also, yeah, we're on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash real sun car hours. That's where you find our free episodes. And um, we're also on Twitter. Before I forget, we're on Twitter. Follow us at sun car hours on Twitter. Um, that's where we have uh, our free episodes and also like we don't just upload our episodes we also retweet links to uh, things that are going on in the world uh, current events um, because yeah this is this is a you know a black left political podcast and we talk about um, you know domestic and international issues from a black left black Marxist perspective um, because you know we both believe that that is uh, something that is sorely needed um, and there's not enough of it so that's why we're here um so anyway yeah we're gonna talk about uh, oh i guess we should probably introduce ourselves oh yes yeah let's just introduce ourselves <laughs> uh good idea yeah i'm adam hudson follow me at adam hudson five on twitter uh i'm peter m gunn do not follow me because uh, <laughs> i hate twitter um uh, actually and yeah actually before i forget like 
speaking of introductions, um, I'll, I'll plug my website, adamhudson.org. Um, this is going to become, this is actually because we're going to talk about Colin Powell, but I uh, co-authored um, a report uh, with the Coalition for Civil Freedoms. It was basically about the 20-year anniversary of uh, 9-11, the war on terror, and how it's impacted Muslim communities. And I talked about how um, basically uh, when looking at the war on terror and a lot of the um, the the civil li- the violations of civil liberties against Muslims, how a lot of that uh, uh, is rooted in basically um, practices that were already done on other oppressed ethnic groups, particularly black people. So I, I contributed a chapter to that about like the racist history of uh, police and slavery and then how that's evolved in terms of, uh, you know, the U.S. government going after uh, black activist leaders like uh, Marcus Garvey and the Black Panther Party and how that and how a lot of those practices um, uh, evolved into like, you know, s- s- tactics of surveillance and assassination that were used during the war on terror. So I wanted to give that a plug, actually, because that's definitely because we're going to be talking about Colin Powell and that's definitely going to overlap with that. So I'll pl- I mean, yeah. So I'll plug my website uh, if, if y'all don't know if y'all don't know about it, because I have a lot of writing on it. Both Peter and I are writers, so we have writing. So, like, I'll plug my writing that I've I've been doing for years. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I've made the mistake of attempting to write a novel, but whenever that's ready for people to read, it'll definitely get plugged. Yeah. Uh, but yes, international issues. We want to get some stuff out of the yeah. way. Yeah, I so guess. we'll begin with, uh, yeah, let's start with um, Haiti and Sudan. Um, let's actually yeah. start with Haiti. Let's start with let's Haiti. Start, let's start with Haiti because we had touched on it uh, a few, I guess a couple months ago now. it's It's been like two months since uh, Jovenel Moise was assassinated, the acting, the, the you know, former prime minister. And the situation has not stabilized uh you know right i mean the a lot of the media reports i i mean it's getting a lot of attention now because one of the main gangs uh kidnapped 17 missionaries which i'm just gonna say you know we, i'm not gonna endorse kidnapping but i will say that missionaries should not be in haiti and especially right <laughs> now uh so i'm just gonna leave it at that but uh that has prompted, you know, amongst the uh, Washington Post editorial board types, you know, a call for intervention. But it does seem that the U.S., like, there really is no desire among the U.S. to re-intervene in hate. Well, there is some, but there's not, a, it doesn't seem like there's much movement. Um, but it is, it is sort of rapidly I don't know if it's rapidly deteriorating because, you know, we're not in Haiti. So I'm not going to make pronouncements about, you know, what's necessarily going on the on on the ground other than, you know, what the reports are saying. But there are, uh, you know, Ariel Henry, the current acting prime minister, is not popular. Like the, none of these are popular, have like a lot of popular support or mandate. That was, you know, the impetus behind the... Uh, the protests 
that, you know, basically led the powers that be to pull the plug on Moise in the first place. So none of that's been resolved. And yeah, I mean, for like things are getting pretty bad in the sense that like the economy is ceasing to function. Um, it, but it, a lot of that is put on the gangs, but you know, it's also because there are massive strike strike waves like by public sector employees and stuff like that. And if anything, like obviously, you know, the anti-black media is going to make it all about the gangs, but the gangs are, they don't have a political agenda themselves is the thing. Um, and so, you know, they are calling for the resignation of Ariel Henry, but that's because they're following the mood of the people, uh, as far as I can understand. So that, you know, we are obviously hoping for some sort of a, you know, I guess peaceful settlement. But the thing about Haiti is that, like, you know, there's just so many years of fuckery built up and built up. And I, you know, none of the people, none of the people who have caused all the problems so far, like, are capable of solving it. It's something that, like, you know, the people themselves are going to have to figure out. And so that may take a while, I guess. Yeah. And, and to go off of that, because um, I think the, um, last month, this is like late September, um, there are obviously some very horrendous images of, um, you know, fucking U.S. Border Patrol on horseback, um, basically horseback and like whips it was it wasn't a whip okay right Thank you yeah. uh politifact said like three pinocchios or whatever right fact yeah. checked it it was the reins of the horse it wasn't a whip or whatever yeah like it was but it like it definitely evoked images of like <laughs> fucking right yeah i mean people are like well it's not a whip actually it's actually a blah 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 i mean well well i mean if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck um you know there are these images some very horrendous images of uh U.S. Border Patrol agents on horseback, like just beating back like Haitian my, Haitian migrants who are crossing the basically the Texas Mexico border. It's like along the Rio Grande, and um, so I mean that definitely sent a lot of you know shockwaves throughout the public about like okay what the fuck is going on because obviously like with Trump I mean he was a lot more bellicose both in rhetoric rhetoric and in practice in terms of uh of um you know immigration policy and deportations and so you know biden got elected the democrats got elected and they're like yeah like trump is so horrible to immigrants and we're gonna do something better so the question is like oh well has biden done anything you know no i mean if anything he's like really stepped up deporting haitians specifically right Right. exactly ice ice really goes in on that uh for you know reasons one can only guess and there's so this raises i think two like two two, two things well one thing that gets one thing that gets uh, often ignored when it comes to immigration policy but the first thing i'm going to mention is that like the the sort of continuity and policy from trump to biden so there's um the, you know there's there's this law called uh, title 42 and it's basically um basically it's it's a trump era emergency policy and the idea is to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in holding facilities. 
So it basically allows U.S. authorities to, um, and I'm reading from a BBC article, it, it allows U.S. authorities to U.S. authorities to automatically expel almost all undocumented migrants seeking entry, bypassing normal immigration laws and protections. Um, so, but uh, anyway, so Biden has kept this policy in place rather than like, you know, uh, have Haitian migrants go through nor normal U.S. asylum laws. So like, you know, because he's because in the context of Haiti, like, I mean, uh, there is a recent obviously the, the recent assassination of the Haitian president, which has destabilized the country. So, you know, so th th that's definitely been a factor in terms of contributing to Haitian yeah. migrants, you know, trying to cross into the U S via Mexico. Well, and, yeah. And, and so, uh, so the U S is like not thinking about, um, okay, let's, you know, allow the Haitian migrants to seek asylum Basically, what uh, Biden is doing is just continuing the normal Trump policy. And the, the other thing I wanted to mention when it comes to immigration law that often gets ignored is the institutionalized anti-blackness of immigration policy. That um, I think because we oftentimes when people talk about immigration, it's usually like people have an image of in their head of like brown skin Mexican and Central American migrants. Like that's sort of the image of immigration. And so, like, what? But the thing is, is that, like, uh, I think oftentimes in these discussions, like, there's there's often um, a lack of analysis in terms of like how immigration intersects with race, and a lot of like, you know, th this. So the the images of like U.S. Border Patrol, you know, like <laughs> harshly treating, harshly abusing Haitian migrants is nothing new. For example. Guantanamo Bay, before it became a torture penal colony after 9-11, was a holding facility for Haitian migrants in the 90s during the Clinton era. Um, and a lot of like uh, uh, immigration policies, harsh immigration policies, um, black immigrants often feel the brunt of it. And Haitian migrants, black migrants from the Caribbean, black immigrants from Africa... So I think like it's and you know like so basically, white immigrants from like let's say Europe or white immigrants from Latin America they're not going to be the ones you're not going to see images of like white people from Colombia being like rounded up on you know with bo fucking border patrol on horseback saying like go get the fuck out of here you don't see those images because like U.S. immigration policy has, has always been grounded in, in race going back to the fucking founding. Like, I mean, yeah, not, not even just the Chinese Exclusion Act, like U.S. immigration policy was specifically designed to create a white country. Thank you. Exactly. And so when we talk about immigration policy and who gets let in, how the changing demographics of America, U.S. immigration policy has always been used as a tactic to reinforce American white supremacy. It doesn't challenge it. It just reinforces it. So that's why, like, when certain immigrants come here depending on how they look like, some are able to assimilate into the dominant white American majority society, while others are not. And especially if you're a black immigrant, okay, you're just with other black people, including black people who are descendants of enslaved Africans who were brought here to the U.S. So I think that's another thing that, like, when we're talking about, especially in the case of Haiti, that often gets overlooked, is, like, the real um, uh, stain of 
racism yeah. and, and anti-blackness and how immigration policy itself is used to reinforce white supremacy. It's not used to like try to create some multiracial melting pot that like is the sort of advertising slogan that America says to the world. No, it's always been since the founding to reinforce a white settler garrison population. And so the what's been happening to Haitian migrants recently, that's just part of a long chapter of racism in US immigration policy going back to the founding. Yeah. And also just a couple of things about sort of that incident specifically because it's like yeah, why are they at why are Haitians at the you know, Texas border and like part of the things, part of the way this shit is so fucked up at this point is that like to ask for asylum in the first place, you have to declare yourself at the border. So these mm-hmm. people weren't immigrants in the sense that like they were trying to cross illegally and then got caught or whatever, you know, the way people think of it in their minds. Like Exactly. These were a lot of them were people that lost everything in the fucking earthquake in 2010 and yep. have been bouncing around through different South American countries for 10 fucking years before they you know this is where they ended up and like that so that's what people have to understand and that you know like they were just in a refugee camp that was on the border and then they're like yeah okay well we're not you know the biden immigration policy is actually more effective at supporting people than trump's is you know trump went for the uh the big sort of you know show showy stuff but in terms of numbers like biden's outpaced him uh, already and uh yeah it's just like like that like that the the situation is it's a because yeah, i look at fox news when i'm at the gym and the shit shows up all the time it's always a crisis at the border and like it's manufactured that way it's right. manufactured to create these you know moments of like intense need that requires the force of law and all this shit and like that's like it's designed to create these images and these events yeah and also like i mean because um i'm we mentioned that uh the images it was at the u.s mexico border so i think this also leaves i mean this it's also important to mention the mexican government's role in this so like the, you know i there's been news coverage of like um mexicans like local the local population of mexicans like doing their best to help haitian refugees and migrants so even though like that goes on on the ground among the local population the mexican government itself has always been working in cahoots with the u.s government when it comes to deportation policy in corms it especially in this case like the the mexican government like has been working in in tandem with the u.s government in terms of you know, deporting and beating back Haitian migrants. And also, like, when it comes to even deportations of other Mexican and Central American migrants as well. Like, the the Mexican government has always worked, you know, hand-in-hand with the U.S. government when it comes to uh, deportation. And, you know, that's nothing new. I, I don't, I don't want to go too deep into history, but I do, actually, since I mentioned, uh, I have a book I want to recommend to our listeners that I just got. It's a pretty good book. I'm going to give the title. Um, it's called Before Mestizaje, The Frontiers of Race and Caste in Colonial Mexico by Ben Vincent III. So Ben Vincent is a um, 
he's a professor at uh, George Washington University. Um, it, this talks about basically the Costa system in um, Mexico during the Spanish colonial period and how it uh, it was its own more complicated system of racial control. But anyway, since I thought I'd recommend this on on this podcast, it's a really good book. So you want if you want to learn about the history of um, uh, slavery and race and like the racial caste system in uh, Mexico, I definitely recommend reading this book because especially since we're talking about Haitian migrants and the U.S. Mexico border, I thought this would be a really good book to mention in terms of uh, historical context. So anyway, that's just a shout out for that for that book. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to kind of add that that like the Mexican government, you know, has its own record of working in cahoots with the U.S. government when it comes to deportations and like this this recent episode of you know the, what has been happening to Haitian refugees at the border. Like the the Mexican government has been like you know doing what the U.S. wants, but at the same time, like you know there there are uh, from what I've seen. Um, <clears throat> The local population in Mexico have been like doing what they can to help the refugees, but you know it's it's not like you know obviously their actions don't uh, uh, coincide with the actions of the actual Mexican government. Yeah, well, yes, I mean Mexico. What's they? I think the saying is, and I'm not going to butcher Spanish by saying in Spanish, "Poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States." Um, so, you know, the Mexican state has always, you know, ha- hasn't really had a choice, but to kind of work hand in glove with the U S capital. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but yeah. I did also want to touch on Sudan because I think it's a, Sudan is one of those countries that like, doesn't get a lot of attention or does in weird ways, of course. Um, you know, I remember in high school when like everyone, you know, had to Darfur was like a big thing, but nobody yeah. knew what was going on, but you had to care about it. Um, oh, I remember that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it, you know, things that there's been definitely different things that have gone on since there. And I mean, also just because Sudan like has a very storied history, like has a very proud history, you know, as like. And so it's one of those, I guess it's kind of a set piece in, like, how fucked over, like, colonialism has made, like, you know, different African countries. Because it's one of those countries that should be, like, a much, you know, more powerful, bigger country, bigger player in the region. And it's sort of intentionally, well, you know, for the longest time, it had been incredibly sanctioned under the regime of Omar Bashir, who, you know, was definitely a ghoul in his own right, and you know, did plenty of terrible things, but the problem was that he did plenty of terrible things while not, you know, allowing U.S. military bases and being on the wrong side of that stuff. So he wasn't our ghoul, and so therefore he was sanctioned and Sudan was partitioned and all that stuff. And that, you know, so Sudan's been in a pretty bad spot um, for a long time until 2018, uh, you know, and Omar Bashir was like almost dead at this point. So like he was very old and there was, yeah, I mean, I hesitate to call it a color revolution because it's a little more complicated than that in the sense that, you know, color revolution is kind of a dirty word. And I don't think like it was definitely like a genuine 
to the degree to which like a genuine democratic uprising can happen like that was what was happening but of course those things always get mediated not so much by the cia because the u.s doesn't the u.s doesn't like focus a lot of attention on sudan they don't really care you know it's not strategically important to them but it is strategically important to the gulf states Mm-hmm. And so they're the minders of Sudan, the or as Al Jazeera calls it, the donors, which is like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but, um, yeah. After you know, after the uprising, there was like a transitional military council, and they had agreed, you know, after some you know pretty brutally repressed protests, they had agreed to have like a power sharing agreement like with the civilian government and the military. Um, And, you know, part of that all, there are some other stipulations, but it was able to get Sudan off of the state sponsors of terrorism list, which, you know, would allow it to like rejoin sort of the international economy, allow like capital flows to come, but they haven't really come in. Um, And, uh, you know, the economy hasn't really stabilized or improved. And so, you know, since that was like in 2018, 2019, in those two years, like the political situation hasn't really stabilized. And, uh, you know, there there had been an attempted coup, uh, I think, a month ago. And uh, and, you know, that was thwarted. But this one, uh, there were some uh, interestingly timed envoys from, you know, some a few different countries like the weekend before this happened. But, you know, that said, the international community is all uh, against it. But, you know, sort of like in Haiti, you know, the instability, like the instability is partially because there are like strikes, you know, there's worker mobilization and there, you know, like the, the forces that, um, you know, bravely fought for like, you know, a civilian democratic government that's still uh, those those people are still mobilizing. Um, but uh, but there I mean, there it there are also parts of the country that, you know, want the military to rule. So it is like a deeply politically divided country. Um, but it's still I think it is fair to say that, you know, what is best for like a civilian government is, you know, something that in this case is, should be hoped for though. I, you know, now the world bank is like, uh, you know, willing to do sanctions and stuff. And that's not, that's not good. That's, I don't, that's not going to help the situation. Um, but it is, but you know, suited, Sudan is like still deemed as a rogue state or whatever, so they're gonna do stuff like that because basically because they don't none of sort of the you know big countries want to take any political heat for it, um, and so they let you know the Gulf states kind of do the dirty work. But it is you know I did want to mention it because I think it's the kind of thing where you just see like oh images of bad things happening and. And, you know, they don't really get to, like, sort of more of the underlying political, yeah, uh, you know, dynamics that helps to actually sort of, like, humanize and make sense of the developments on the African continent. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I haven't, unfortunately, I haven't been able to keep 
uh, up to date was Sudan. Um, since we were talking about Haiti, and I actually think this this kind of overlaps with Sudan, um, The Intercept um, ha- had uh, recently had um, uh, has been doing like a an investig like kind of you know some reporting on the um, assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise uh, back in July, and this is from uh, Ryan Grimm, reporter Ryan Grimm. And um, apparently there's evidence that um, the mercenaries involved in the assassination of the Haitian president, Weiss, uh, were also involved in a, an alleged plot to assassinate a leftist presidential candidate in Bolivia. Um and I want to I want to read a couple passages from this because I think this this because uh, I think it's it um, I want to read this and then like kind of connect it to Sudan in terms of like uh, sort of what to look out for in terms of U.S. foreign policy. So I'm gonna read a cu- couple parts from this. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but uh, so it starts: Mercenaries involved in the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise in July traveled to Bolivia ahead of the country's election late last year, according to Bolivian authorities. In a press conference on Monday, Bolivian government officials alleged that the mercenaries were in Bolivia with orders to assassinate Luis Arce, then the leading leftist candidate for president. Arce served as finance minister under former president Evo Morales and was the presidential nominee of his party Movement Towards Socialism, or MAS. Bolivian authorities connected the plot to an effort previously reported by the intercept by ex-defense minister Luis Fernando Lopez to imp- to import US mercenaries into Bolivia ahead of the election to block the left from returning to power after Morales had been ousted ousted in a coup a year earlier leading the advance team in Haiti that ultimately assassinated the president according to Colombian authorities was Colombian mercenary uh, German Alejandro Rivera Garcia now held in Haitian custody. According to the Minister of Government, Carlos del Castillo del Carpillo, um, I'm probably butchering that, so apologies. Uh, Rivera, who goes by Colonel Mike, entered Bolivia on October 16, 2020, under passport number AV969623, two days before the Bolivian election. He came to into Bolivia from Colombia via Viru, via the Viru Viru airport in Santa Cruz and stayed at the Hotel Presidente in La Paz near the presidential palace. The intercept could not independently independently could not immediately independently verify the Bolivian government claims. Um, the Haitian president assassins were organized by the Doral, Florida-based security contractor counterterrorism unit. Fet- Unit Federal Academy LLC, which is run by Antonio Emmanuel Intriago Valera and um, Arsenio Pretel Ortiz, who acted as a recruiter. Both Pretel and Intriago entered Bolivia between October 16th and October 19th, Bolivian officials said. Like Rivera, they entered via Vidu Vidu Airport in Santa Cruz, the home base of the country's right wing opposition. So basically, so the people who assassinated the Haitian president, these are mercenaries. And many of these mercenaries, like we did an episode where we talked about the assassination. Many of those mercenaries, those contractors were 
trained by the U.S. They had U.S. military training. And these guys are now private military contractors. And so, especially since 9-11, the, the industry of, like, private military contractors, i.e. mercenaries, has grown very, like, exponentially. Um, so they're not just used in... Um, I mean, they're, you know, probably the more infamous case was, uh, you know, Blackwater in Iraq, but they're not the only ones. Like, there's U.S. mercenaries operating globally. And so um, one thing that Ryan Grimm pointed out um, on a a TV segment is that, like, it's showing how easy it is for anyone, you know, presidents or political leaders to just hire a group of assassins to take out their political opponents like literally hire from like a private company to do an assassination um and i and i want to say this because i think especially when we're looking at um u.s foreign policy including in africa um you know i'm again i don't know like the whole details of the coup in sudan but you know when we're looking at um things like you know assassinations coups and who's behind them uh one thing to look for is is the growth of private assassins mercenaries um so when i read this that was i just thought this very striking that some of the many of the mercenaries involved the assassination of the haitian president were allegedly involved in a plot to assassinate a leftist candidate for president in Bolivia. And so this is, I mean, it's, it, it, uh, it, you know, the, the sort of web of, you know, global private contractors and U.S. drone strikes um, in the growth of U.S. special operations forces just shows like the changing, sort of the changing, shifting tactics of the U.S. global war machine and empire that like, you know, um, and this is going to we're going to be talking about Colin Powell later but like you know right. we're it's it's shifted from like massive military invasion and occupation to like okay well a team of mercenaries some drone strikes some commandos and that's what you need to you know uh uh overthrow surgical precision right surgical, surgical precision surgical precision right for us interests blah 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 shit like that so yeah i yeah <laughs> i will say one that makes the victory of Moss in Bolivia just all the more incredible, and, <laughs> and that, I mean it's proof that like you know if you really do have the people behind you, you can you know overcome some of the most difficult of circumstances. Also, just one addendum to Sudan because I'm and you know we mentioned like the Gulf states having you know sort of being the i guess proxy uh imperialist or whatever but also you know sort of rising as like a new or re-rising as a you know big regional player is egypt under al-sisi uh you know who is basically a military dictator Mm -hmm. um and you know he seemed he egypt and sisi seemed to be sort of you know ascending to like having you know, a more prominent role. And, you know, he, it was Egypt who sort of helped, uh, retrain and kind of get the Sudanese military back together. Cause it was, I mean, there are a lot of factional disputes and stuff in Sudan. Like there's, 
there's a lot of different conflicts and stuff and so you know like you need a backer to pull off a coup um generally and so you know egypt definitely figures into that it figures into uh into the development you know in ethiopia which i think we mentioned a few months ago and you know may we'll probably return to at some point but yeah i've that you know they are sort of emerging as i think a new player to watch i mean i hate talking like that but you know that's how the imperialists look at it so you know you have to think that way a little bit i guess um you know and one more thing to hit on before you know we delve into a very horrendous article written in the guardian um among other things uh (laughs) is the IATSE, the mm. International Association of Theatrical and Stagehand Employees, I believe that I got that right. Yeah, sounds um, right. Yeah, good job. You know, the sort of the uh, labor dispute there, as I'm sure you all heard, you I'm sure everyone heard about the incident uh, where Alec Baldwin killed someone. Uh, yeah, no. he he killed <laughs> he killed somebody, and injured another person. So I yeah. wanted, let, let's get the like the. D- damn it let's yeah you know it's that's not an it's not an incorrect statement to say like you know people are like oh yes yeah, so it was an accident i mean he might have accidentally killed someone though i you I mean it was his you know movie like he his production company i think like you know it was his set it was his movie and so like he does bear some responsibility because you know, the, these kinds of accidents, like, are eminently avoidable if you have, like, a properly trained union crew, mm-hmm. but the crew had walked out, and, uh, you know, no one's gonna tell, as my, well, Razik, who's on the podcast, I was talking to him about it, because he does film stuff, um, he told me, you know, no one's ever gonna tell Al Baldwin he asked to stop shooting his movie just because the crew walked out, so they had been you know, using, like, people who are not union and not well-trained and, uh, yeah, not versed in gun safety um, because one of the things is that, uh, you know, basically on, like, a low-budget movie, it's just easier for someone to bring in their own gun than to, like, buy a fake gun, you know, stuff like that, and just, like, people not being, you know, not checking the chamber and stuff like that. So, like, it is, you know, criminal negligence because, you know, a worker died on her job, on the job. Like, you know, that's that's something that's, like, pretty fucking serious. And it seems to, like, it seems to have kind of nuked the uh, the initial settlement because it, you know, they're gotten some concessions, but, you know, it was still kind of bad, um, you know reading articles like a lot of people have been disparaging it online like you know members of the union and so it's going for a vote uh i think this in the next couple of weeks um but it may not pass which means we may be added for an a an iatsi strike and to be clear that you know that union represents like basically most film crew employees so if that strike happens like you know, content is going down, and uh, you know who knows what that's going to do to Americans. But uh, yeah, and and to um, 
Yeah, to add on to that, because the the crew, the the union crew walked out for safety reasons. Like they they were they had some real complaints about safety on set, and this is in the context of an ongoing IATSE strike. Of you uh, know, you know, I mean, it's it's not a strike yet, but you know, oh, labor contract uh, negotiations. So yeah, the contract negotiations, right, 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 yeah. So not a strike, not an official strike. So, but. This is yeah an ongoing issue, and so basically yeah issues of um, worker safety, uh, underpayment, um, being overworked, and so th- there are some real complaints, and that's why a lot of the union crew walked off set uh, to basically like to in protest of that, and so yeah there are non-union crew who were, so the movie it, it was being filmed so it was being filmed I guess for uh a TV show called Rust that um, is an Alec Baldwin production. And um, people were making comparisons to uh, Brandon Lee. So I want to, I want to add to this because I want to bring this up because maybe some of our listeners may not be aware of, of, of what happens. So Brandon, Brandon Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most of the zoomers don't know about the crow. Yeah. So Brandon Lee was the son of the, you know, great uh, martial artist, uh, Bruce Lee. Um, so, I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody knows who, who Bruce Lee is, but if you don't know, please look him up. <laughs> so Brandon Lee was the son of Bruce Lee. And, uh, so Brandon Lee was, uh, there's a movie called The Crow, um, is, came out in 1994. It's a really good film. Um, the, the first one's really good. They, they have like, yeah. they have a sequel of it, which was kind of okay, but the, the first one was really good. Extremely nineties. Yes, yeah, so really 90s, but it, it it was a good film. But anyway, Brandon Lee died on set on that movie, which made it even more um, kind of eerie. And here's here's what happened. Here's the kind of technical stuff about it. So what happens is that, because in the movie, you know, they're using like um, a gun because uh, it's about basically. So Brandon Lee plays a guy who, um, you know, he's killed, but he comes back to life, is resurrected through the power of this crow and uh he basically his the his object his kind of like you know the main plot revolves on him getting revenge on uh the guy who killed him and like raped and killed his girlfriend so that's that's basically the plot of the, of the movie so brandon lee as a as a character he's the main protagonist he, he's the one trying to get revenge for his death and the death and rape of his girlfriend and so the fact that Brandon Lee died on set just made made it even more, you know, kind of again eerie. It added it added to like, you know, what the film was about in a very dark way. So um, in the in the movie, because it's, it you know there's violence in it, they um, used a gun. So one of the guns they had it was a revolver. I think it was like a forty four Magnum or something like that. But um, and so there was so one of the guys is using the revolver to shoot Brandon Lee's character. And so normally on normally well these days in a lot of movies to do like um, gun guns and stuff like that there's lo- there's more CGI so you don't have to yeah use yeah you just yeah they just use like a CGI flash but right but this is in the nineties when CGI wasn't really as up to par as it is now in twenty twenty one so uh, normally normal normally um, people use uh, blanks. So basically, a blank is like okay. So a normal bullet is like you have the uh, it's a cartridge. So you have the bullet, 
and then you have like the casing which has gunpowder and then you have a primer and when you fire a gun the the hammer hits the primer the primer ignites the gunpowder and that's what makes the bullet like eject through the barrel and then that's what that's a fire gun gunshots basically so bullet goes out of a gun barrel and shoots and hits it's the intended target so for blanks on on film on film sets for tv and movies um they take the bullet out of the cartridge and put like some wadding on it so they they so to give the real effect of like the bang from a gun but there's no bullet coming out of the chamber so you're not actually killing anybody you're just having like the loud bang it's kind of similar to like when i when i ran track and field um when i was in high school it was somewhat similar but it was like a cap and but it was like it's a starting gun so like you have a starting gun and it goes bang but the starting gun on like a track set like there's no barrel there's nothing coming out of the barrel like the barrel's like um you know closed off and stuff so nothing can come out but you still get the loud bang on the starting gun to let people know to go so um it's similar with movies but you know you have like a real gun but you replace the actual bullets with uh blanks and so what happened is that like there is a mishap on set and somebody kind of fucked up on how they how handled guns because the normal guy who um handled the guns i guess he went on break or something then they had somebody else come in to try to check it out and that's when things got that's where the mistake happened because in another uh i guess scene they wanted to get a shot of the revolver but like have the bullets in the revolver chamber so it looks more realistic uh but what happened is that like the person who normally didn't handle it who they some replacement dude they um they took out the gunpowder but they left the primer in so when the gun the hammer hit the primer it was enough to put the bullet inside of the chamber, but it wasn't enough for it to exit the chamber because there's no gunpowder. And so what happened is that when the next guy came in to put the blanks in, nobody checked the chamber. Because normally if you see people handling guns, you have to check the fucking chamber to see if there's a bullet inside. Nobody checked the chamber in the revolver, so they put the blanks in, which again, no bullet, but there's gunpowder. So when it came to the next scene to like shoot Brandon Lee... The bullet was already in the chamber. They had the blanks with the gunpowder, but the blanks had no bullets. It was just gunpowder. So when the gun, the gunpowder ignited, it was enough to have the bullet in the chamber go out and kill Brandon Lee. So that's what happened. So I don't know. And so that was like, it was pretty fucking tragic. I know the guy who um, technically shot Brandon Lee, I believe he committed suicide like 10 years later. Yeah. Because he was so, um, obviously, yeah, because he accidentally killed but that in that case like it, it was it seemed like a you know a mishap yeah. but but since then like you know that's and, why yeah and because of that yeah there's a there's a number of protocols like it's the kind of thing that should never happen right um, and exactly. so yeah yeah i i mean i think probably what happened you know in that case was just somebody didn't check the chamber and yeah. so Mm-hmm. yeah there you know there was like a because <laughs> i because i heard somebody like there were, i heard reports that like someone on set was firing the gun for target practice i'm like why the fuck yeah are you firing yeah that well there have been like already accidental discharges on the set and it, at no point would did alec baldwin be like yo guys maybe let's uh stop filming and figure this stuff out nope show must go on and so yes he I think he does deserve some criminal responsibility for what happened. Yeah. But, uh, yes. 
you know, all right, well, we we've uh we've you know now to the main event, I suppose. Yeah, the main. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, Colin Powell, um, Colin died. Powell. Yeah, former U- Secretary of State during the Bush administration. He was also the National Security Advisor during the Ronald Reagan administration. Um, he died of complication with COVID-19. He had cancer and he got vaccinated, but he still died of COVID. He was 84 years old. So in that situation, like, yeah, his immune system was already weak that, you know, dying of COVID complications related relationship to cancer is expected. It's or not surprising, but, um, same way Colin Powell died and, um, you know, there's a lot of fucking revisionism and hagiography about his record. But here's the thing, like, he, Colin Powell, like, um, you know, he was, um, he was, uh, well, he was secretary, yeah, he was secretary of state, yeah. He, he was secretary, secretary of state under Bush. Under Bush. Um, and, but, uh, you know, I basically, and I, and I have no problem saying this, he's basically like the Sammy Davis Jr. of the Reagan ghouls. Like, <laughs> like he really was. Um, just like, like he was a ghoul himself. Um, uh, I don't know why every time people talk about, and th- and we'll get into this because this was a, uh, you know, our old friend, Michael Harrett from the root wrote, uh, something in the guardian. So at least it's readable now. Um, but you know, you know, the idea that like Colin Powell was, you know, was just this excellent soldier who, uh, you know, just had this dis- English career and then you know the UN speech was a blot on his otherwise amazing career is just completely diluted I mean you know maybe we should start at the beginning um you know of Colin Powell's uh you know illustrious career yeah and actually I, I'm I, I'll let's mention his actual heritage because a lot of people have been kind of getting this mixed up because when people say black american they mean people think african-american in terms of as an ethnicity in, ter- in terms of like people who are descendants of enslaved africans brought to the u.s beginning in the 1600s um colin powell was born in the u.s but he's of jamaican heritage so his parents were jamaican immigrants but he was born here in the u.s so that also makes him black american but bl- black america black american identity it is basically any black person who's born and raised in the U.S. So, so if somebody is like a comes from a family of Nigerian immigrants and they're born here, they're Black American. But they're but African American um, as an identity. Oh, yeah, yeah. I want to clear so because people. I'm on an ethnic studies committee. <laughs> people get these things. Colin confused. Powell is not an ADOS. Is, yeah, I mean, which yeah. even though like the ADOS crew, I mean, or the proto ADOS crew, you know, before that shit was a thing. Right. I feel like. Like, you know, regular people didn't weren't really on the Colin Powell train, but there was a very specific class of people who, you know, were all like climbers in the, you know, imperial system themselves that did like Colin Powell. And I mean, I just remember him being kind of thrown out like like, oh, yeah, you know, for the 
in the messaging where they told black kids, oh, this is why you need to stay in school. And when they're like, here are all the black heroes to look up to, like Colin Powell would be there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember that like during Black History Month. So. Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah. Here's the thing, because like, um, people get terms like race, ethnicity confused a lot. Um, so I just want to explain what these terms are. So race is just, you know, yeah, race is a social construct. Blah 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 blah. We all know that. But basically, race is like, uh, based on what you physically look like. So in case of being black, it's like, okay, if you, if your phenotype, your skin color, your hair texture. Or if you look like you have African lineage, you're racialized as black. Now, when it comes to ethnicity, which is how most people usually identify, is you know you have a common ancestry, shared history, um, shared language or dialect, and like shared kind of cultural heritage. African American is ethnicity. So ancestry, okay, ancestors who came from Western Central Africa. Okay, we may not know our particular quote-unquote tribe or ethnic group, blah, blah, blah. I get that. But here's the thing. We know where the slave ship fucking came from. Came from Africa. History. Our ancestors were the victims of U.S. chattel slavery. Boom. Okay. Dialect. African-American vernacular English. There you go. For Jamaican, be Jamaican Creole. So it's a slightly different dialect, right? Um, Cultural heritage, so food, blah, 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 blah. So basically, we're talking about blackness. There's different types of black identity, especially in the African diaspora. Those of us whose ancestors were victims of the transatlantic slave trade, shared history when it comes to the transatlantic slave trade, shared ancestry when it comes to being descendants of people from Western Central Africa, but different cultural identities based on where the slave ships were dropped off. So I think it, it, having knowing that distinction uh, helps. Um, just you know it helps clarify things so yeah when people and i want to say that because like you know calling colin powell like a you know black american uh a hero um like because i i noticed people like uh when people say black american they confuse it with the ethnicity of african american so i wanted to clarify that but yeah like um so colin powell like at the time i what i remember this is what what the fuck i remember like during the time of the Bush years, black people in general, um, during the Bush years, were not really fucking with Colin Powell that much, like because for, first of all, he's always he was always a Republican, and black people politically, especially since the nineteen thirties, especially since the nineteen thirties and definitely since the nineteen sixties, politically black people are, for the most part, Democrat, but mostly I would say anti-Republican. Like, in terms of, like, anti-Republican party. So, during the Bush years, like, right after 9-11 and on the run-up to the Iraq war and throughout the Bush years, black America was not, what they weren't fucking, black people were not fucking with George Bush at all. So, what, so, which is weird because, like, Peter, you and I were talking about this before uh, we started recording. If you look at the Bush administration's, like, representation uh it was kind of intersectional a little bit yeah John yeah you the asian guy alberto gonzalez latino guy Condoleezza rise a black woman uh i mean i mean so bush yeah. was basically yeah more... no the the bush administration was woke i mean they even tried right. to put harriet myers on the supreme court right i remember and you know which like that should it shouldn't be surprising because you know bush are actually east coast wasps the Bush family are actually East Coast wasps. 
that just put yeah. on a fucking cowboy hat. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so you know they know what liberalism is. They're just that's just makes them all the more evil. But you know, co- yeah, Colin Powell um, grows up, you know, in Southside Bronx or whatever, South mm-hmm. Bronx or whatever. Yeah. You know, j- started from the bottom, uh, goes to City College uh, of New York, which was once known for being a hotbed of communism, but I think by the 50s it really wasn't. But, you know, that would be very interesting um, if you ran into that. But probably not because he, you know, he didn't have any real ambitions other than he did ROTC, you know, then gets shipped to Vietnam as lieutenant and uh, comes attend. You know, basically his political career starts when he co- helps cover up the My Lai Massacre. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, during the Vietnam War, the uh, Vietnam War, the My Lai Massacre, yeah, he... Yeah, he helped cover that shit up. Um, so, you know, like, basically, so he set an example for any black person or, you know, person of color, non-white person, in order to um, be a true striver and to really, like, climb, yeah. you know, the machine. The best way to kind of climb the machine, uh, one of the best ways to do that is to cover up atrocities do, of yeah. the U.S. imperial system. Well, yes, do, do the Empire's dirty work. Because after that, he, he's out of the military for a little while. He goes and gets an MBA in, uh, at George Bullshit. Washington University. I mean, fucking hilarious. Uh, then he goes back... I mean, it's, it is very obvious that, like, you know, Nixon or whoever, probably not Nixon himself, but, you know, I, I just want to do the Nixon voice. Look, Sonny, there's a car- we really appreciate what you did. You know, there's a career in it for you. Um, and, you know, he then gets, he goes back, he's stationed in uh, Korea, um, where, you, I'll, I'll just read from this, uh, 1973 to 1974, Powell served as a battalion commander in Korea. Some argue, and this is from a CNN profile of him back in 96, so it didn't occur to them to not, uh, not, not take, not take this out. Uh, some argue that the crisis Powell inherited in Korea is the one episode of his career that best resembles the challenges he would face dealing with the major america's racial problems as president oh yes right because he was basically like trying to run for president in 96 so that's what this is about powell wait, wait repeat that again because i feel like th- yeah okay someone argued that the crisis powell inherited in korea is the one episode of his career that best resembles the challenges he would face dealing with america's racial problems as president powell now oh. now a lieutenant colonel took over the second in infantry division after blacks had essentially seceded from the unit and in one riot had almost killed a white officer, which I didn't know anything about this, but fuck yeah. Um, you know, like, I know, I know in Vietnam, like, it got pretty, like, there's there could be a total breakdown in the chain of command because mm-hmm. uh, people just weren't, you know, people weren't feeling it and, like, they weren't going to get killed on some stupid shit. Uh, I didn't, you know, and there was like a rise of black consciousness, you know, in the military and, you know, a lot of black people were, you know, forcibly in the military for, or, you know, joined cause there's literally nothing else to do, you know, no other jobs to get where you came from. Uh, but the Korean commanding general, Hank Emerson ordered a crackdown 
on the black militants, and Powell carried it out. He he discharged one soldier who he remembers now only as Private Odom after learning of his clandestine meetings. Powell and the other battalion commanders then started working the men so hard they were too tired to fight with one another. Powell has often said that this year whipping his Korean battalion into shape, interesting word choice, (laughs) was his most satisfying ever. Most hmm. his most his most huh. satisfying ever. The <laughs> highest point of his military career is uh, is keep putting some black people and keeping some you know what's in line. Uh, remember that you know James Kiffield, an expert on military culture, said Powell was first and foremost an army officer. Powell felt the military had always given blacks a relatively fair shake and was trying to do even better. For that, he is rewarded with uh, being admitted into the National War College, which is basically like, uh, you know, one of the high, the Harvard of military education, as it called, as, you know, this article says. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they're like, oh, wow, this guy will do anything for us. He's a, re-, you know, because it's always like Colin Powell's a real soldier. What that means is that he's willing to do all of the Empire's dirty work. And, uh, yeah, basically, he he goes to the National War College, and then he comes out and... Uh... Oh, also, also uh, to, to add on to it, like, so, what was particularly egregious about... Because he was, um, during the Vietnam War, like, he was... Um investigating basically you know atrocities like because there were hundreds of unarmed civilians killed during the melee massacre but um yeah. basically uh he, he basically covered up in what he wrote like in his report he said um in direct refutation of this portrayal it's a fact that relations between american soldiers and the vietnamese people are excellent so basically he was saying like you know like despite like evidence of a you know massacre uh he was saying it like oh yeah the relations between U.S. soldiers and the Vietnamese people are actually like pretty peachy and they're excellent. So yeah, um, that's you know part of his uh, decorated service in Vietnam War, in the Vietnam War. It's yeah, part of his honorable service right there. Yeah. Oh, this is another interesting paragraph. So yeah, uh, basically, when Reagan becomes president, um, you know, I mean, he's bouncing around in the in the military in the pentagon you know under carter reagan becomes president he becomes the aide to cat first of all can you imagine that we really had a defense secretary named casper Feinberger? oh yeah <laughs> just yeah. just a little too on the nose um <laughs> that was reagan's first defense secretary i mean i it ended up being well it ended up being cheney for a while um but yeah, he was under that. Um, this is interesting. Only to de- to demonstrate the you know this man with his illustrious military career or whatever. Um, it says Powell's next assignment almost derailed his career. In the summer of 1981, Powell was sent to Fort Carson, Colorado, to be an assistant division commander. He knew he had to get out of Washington if he wanted to keep moving forward in the army. Powell was now a brigadier general, but he wanted the ultimate command, his own division. Powell had conflicts with his direct boss, Major General John Hudicek. In one division, he failed to tell him a high-ranking foreign official 
was visiting his base. And for the first time, Powell was rated average on his efficiency report. Most Uh-oh. devastating, Powell was not recommended to command his own division. For most, such a poor recommendation would spell early retirement, but Powell was saved by his friends in Washington. So, at, you know, after that, basically to prove that, like, he's a made guy, um, whatever, you know, I liter- pretty literally Faustian bargain he made with the ghouls that run this shit uh, worked out because he just goes onward and upward, you know, and spends the 80s basically, like, forming the you know u.s policy for central america like he had a pretty significant role in that el salvador especially and Um, panama as well yeah yes oh yeah because um yeah like he and and i think like this i want to bring up panama because this is going to be i think a really important point for like the kind of um uh intersectional representation matters types of people you know um liberals who love shallow forms of tokenism uh so basically yeah like because well man manuel noriega was like on cia payroll for a long fucking time um yeah he was buddies yeah yeah i mean he was someone who the cia put in and then he basically stopped doing what they wanted him to do so he had to go but you know instead of just hiring someone to assassinate him george hw bush had to uh face down what was called the wimp factor uh this was you you can look up articles at the time and this was like publicly discussed he he was too which could not be more hilarious when you look at you know what he's been up to the idea like that perhaps the most evil person of the second half of the 20th century you know still had to face the wimp factor just because he was you know he had the you know warm milk uh presentation down pat so you know Colin Powell famously, I guess, created the Powell Doctrine, which says, you know, force is the last resort, but there should be overwhelming military force. So, you know, to remove Noriega, they launched a full-scale invasion of Panama and just, Mm -hmm. like, leveled, you know, whole neighborhood blocks and... You know? killing uh, yeah and killing a lot of black panamanians by the way yes. and this is like and this is this is kind of like why i brought up um you know what it means to be black and person of african descent african diaspora and you know because uh, again i'm like pan-africanist we're all african people we're all part of the african diaspora african family african continent but also like there's some um you know minute uh, uh differences to kind of appreciate in terms of understanding these important political events so you know you have to uh, this is really important just to understand that you have um a jamaican a guy who's black american of jamaican heritage um you know climbing his way up to the echelons of the american empire and he's playing a vital role in the u.s invasion of panama which has a large black population because of slavery and also panama like when it came to the building of the panama canal there are a lot of jamaican migrant poor migrant workers who are building that fucking panama canal look at the history of the you the you know panama canal u.s also u.s and roosevelt and all that shit look that up a lot of jamaican caribbean poor migrant workers were being used and abused and exploited to build the panama canal for U.S. imperial interests. So that's another part of the reason why there's a black population in Panama. And also Panama and Colombia, 
uh, were also um, uh, have their own history with slavery and colonization because those are former Spanish colonies. And when Spain colonized the Americas, they brought a bunch of enslaved Africans to, you know, work the plantations and enrich their fucking empire. Um, so that is also why Latin America itself has black populations and their own histories of uh, histories and ongoing legacies of anti-blackness because of fucking slavery and so you have a black american of jamaican heritage military guy part of the u.s empire playing a fucking role in the u.s invasion of panama and and which also results in the killing of black people in panama yeah so it, it just shows like how much like this oh let's just have like this hero like how much like that representation black representation in the u.s empire is such fucking bullshit you know and i really want people to understand this because i feel like it's a lesson that a lot of black people and also other people of color by the way because when we talk about the bush administration hey there's an asian guy john Yu, who um helped write the legal justification for fucking torture and there's also alberto gonzalez as well who's latino so you know, when people talk about representation matters, this and blah, 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 blah. Well, to what fucking end? Okay, you want to have, like, a, a non-white token b- being part of, like, this, this empire that is also involved in killing other black and brown people across the fucking globe? So, Colin Powell's record, like, is is a case study in how much, like, the the political limitations... And also the political folly of like this rhetoric of representation matters and all this kind of shit. So we're talking about Colin Powell being a black American hero. Let's let's I want people to get this fucking straight that he played a role in the deaths of black people in Panama. That's part of his fucking record. And also just, you know, cherry on the shit Sunday. uh, He also was pretty instrumental in uh, in the Persian Gulf War where. Mm-hmm. You know, we used uh, depleted uranium, and also, you know, if you look up images of the Highway of Death, where mm. they bombed basically, you know, people like civilians driving away from Baghdad, you know, trying to get away, they just bombed the shit out of them. You know, this this is the Powell doctrine. You know, this is this is this is the true soldier, guys. I mean, and so you know, you don't even have to. D- get to the fucking UN speech to be like, no, this guy's a fucking ghoul as much as the rest of them. And it blows my mind other than the fact that nothing gives like, you know, the average like white American reactionary a larger erection than seeing a black man faithfully and enthusiastically carrying out the dirtiest deeds of the American empire. And that's yeah. why people believe that oh he's such the he's just such an amazing soldier and he has so much integrity like what the fuck are you people talking about and, integrity and, that he lost right integrity and what also the fuck uh, is that and adding on to like the integrity being fucking lost um I, I was on a, I was on I was speaking on a panel of uh, about the war on terror the report I was talking about and uh, it is something that's important important to appreciate like. Um, when it comes to the U.S. military, they they don't just recruit like poor working class African Americans, black people who are descendants of enslaved Africans, victims of U.S. chattel slavery. 
etc., etc. But the U.S. military also recruits heavily from oppressed immigrant communities. Many, many of who people who are immigrants from countries that themselves are also targets of U.S. imperialism. So Jamaica, also a target of U.S. Oh empire. yeah, <laughs> the Caribbean, Haiti. Also a target of the U.S. empire. I mean, we were talking about Haiti. We didn't even talk about the long history of U.S. imperialism in Haiti. I mean, the Caribbean, um, countries in Latin America. Like, so when we're talking about, like, th- this is this is what's again like is really important for people to appreciate to understand because I feel like without this kind of analysis, people make mistakes in terms of understanding what's going on. That like you could have people who are black or who are people of color, who are immigrants, immigrants who are coming from countries that themselves are also targets of U.S. empire, become part of the U.S. imperial machine and become part of that same system that reinforces the same violent oppression against not even like their home countries, but also other countries that are like at the receiving end of U.S. empire globally, whether it be in Latin America africa asia the pacific wherever yeah yeah and 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 people people really like the the u.s military and the kind of propaganda like they're very good at recruiting from poor communities low-income communities and and immigrant communities and i can i can say as somebody who lives in a a community that is predominantly black and non-white with a lot of immigrants i i know people i know people personally who i grew up with who are from migrant communities who are either like Latinx or Filipino, they join the military and whew, that ideology kicks in like it really does. And so like Colin Powell is a product of that, especially growing up in the South Bronx from Jamaican immigrants. I mean, that is, this is, he, he climbed up that ladder and this is the result, like highway of death in the Persian Gulf. Um, Panama. Oh, yeah, I mean, the... you can also throw Somalia in there. Why not? Right, Somalia. Um, the meal. I mean, the list goes on. And um, now, I mean, adding on to that list, let's talk about the, the fucking Iraq War. I mean, this sure. is the cherry on top. I mean, the infamous the, the cherry um, on top of the cherry on top right. of <laughs> on but, top yeah. of yeah, because he he um because so when when Colin Powell he was Secretary of State. Uh, during the first Bush administration, Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State during Bush's second term. So uh, this was um, so Colin Powell gave a presentation at the UN Security Council, UN Security Council in New York on February fifth, two thousand three, and there is an infamous picture of him showing up a vial of um, anthrax. To basically, he was the one who, because the Bush administration was during that time period for for, for those who. Who don't remember just going down historical memory um during like 2002 the bush administration was building up its case to invade iraq to basically connect the country of iraq and the iraqi government with 9-11 by saying oh the iraqi government had weapons of mass destruction like nuclear weapons biological weapons chemical weapons and that the that the Iraqi government had ties you, with Al Qaeda and nine eleven. Yeah. And, well, and, even worse, the mobile chemical weapons labs, like basically yes. a meth lab, but for anthrax. That's ba- right. That's what they were selling. Like that, you needed an invasion for. I mean, it's just insane in the on its face. But 
you know, that this the threat was basically like Saddam. I mean, because Saddam did have the chemical weapons we sold him. Right. Uh, and this, yeah, this is important. Like during the 80s, there is the Iran Iraq war. And so, like, when um, the Shah of Iran was over, like, was overthrown and replaced by the Ayatollah in the 80s, so the oh, U.S. Oh, Cohen Paul also was part of Iran Contra, too. Uh, yeah, you know. yeah. So, so there's, yeah, so there's, like, a long history. So, like, the Iran-Iraq War, the U.S. was against Iran because the Shah of Iran, who was a U.S. US and British puppet, was overthrown by the, you know, the Islamic government, the Ayatollah. Um, and so the U.S. like, okay... Uh, we have to go after go to war proxy war with Iran again. This is all because of fucking oil, by the way. Iran and Iraq, like that whole Persian Gulf region, oil very strategically important for U.S. and British imperial interests. So the U.S. was selling chemical weapons to Saddam's government in Iraq because the Saddam go- the Ba'ath Party in Iraq had their own beef with Iran. So, so the U.S. was was allied with Iraq in the '80s to go after Iran. So the U.S. had sold chemical weapons to Iraq during the '80s to use against Iran, and so there were some leftover chemical weapons. But during the '90s, after the Persian Gulf War, um, there were punishing sanctions against Iraq, and there were weapons inspectors who went into Iraq to dismantle the their Iraq's like WD program, which the it actually worked. Like if you Scott Ritter, who was a former weapons inspector, he was there on the ground. He's like, yeah, like we dismantled all, almost all of it. Like like the nuclear weapons. Like basically, Iraq's ability to like be an imminent threat to the United States was gone. Like there was no way at that time that the U.S. could like. <laughs> like, it, it does it makes it makes no sense i mean you know Saddam was definitely cool but it's not a fucking idiot and like right. yeah it, the ability and uh you know this is the same thing oh uh also granada colin, colin powell was oh well, yes had, had his hand in granada too and it strikes me as the the excuse they used in granada was like oh look at these you know, fuzzy satellite images. The Cubans are building a military base in Granada. We have to go in. And it's like, how does that make any sense? <laughs> like, if you just, like, even if, like, it it relies on people being just so fucking racist that they just assume mm-hmm. that, like, any brown skin head of state is just, like, up to, you know, in, like, insane Terrorism. villain. I mean, right. not just insane villainy, but, like, also just completely incompetent. But, you know, the watchful eyes of the U.S. Uh, imperial apparatus has caught him. We got him, you know. Yeah. And so he's trying to hide. But we we know the truth. It's like, no, you're making this shit up. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, we that. Yeah, his speech was about mobile. But like it does. Like, why would you? That doesn't make sense at all. Like oh, why and- that would be desirable, necessary. What you but like? It, they're gonna drive him into like it doesn't make sense at all as no, to why it, this is a thing. But well, thing, yeah, and sorry to cut you, but like the, the reason why people bought this pile of horseshit at the time is because like you know during a time period like September eleventh, September eleventh, two thousand one, the the terrorist the terrorist attacks, the 
the destruction of the Twin Towers. Oh, yeah. And, like, people, like, there was this atmosphere of fear that I think, like, as as I as I remember it, I remember how fucking, like, um, there's a lot of, like, uh, some real hysteria that was whipped up after 9-11. Yeah. Bush became this war president. So people were willing to believe anything. They, they, I mean, people... Any, yeah, it was he, he, like the edge lord, the, like the talk radio edge lords talked about turning the. They'd say turn the Middle East into glass because they're going to yeah. nuke the desert and turn all the sand into glass. That's what they would say. Mm-hmm. That's what they wanted to do. Yeah, there was there so. was so much um, bl- uh, bloodlust couched in like racism as long like it was. Uh, I, I think like for people who. I mean, for those of our listeners who probably like don't don't remember that time period, or you know, like I I I want to um, hammer. It's important to hammer it home because this is why like people were able to believe this stuff. And Colin Powell, like he was really crucial in selling this bullshit on an international stage to justify an illegal invasion, uh, a war of aggression that the U.S. government waged on iraq a, a war that killed hundreds of thousands if not millions of people caused a displacement of millions of people in iraq and also laid the groundwork for another uh group called isis the islamic state like isis would not exist without the iraq war and so when people talk about like okay now we need to go after isis because they're like the new terrorist threat well they wouldn't fucking exist if it was not for the fucking Iraq War that Colin him Powell himself helped justify, like the 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 sort of steaming bullshit of lies, like Colin Powell sold it on like you know a, a nice platter on a world stage to justify the invasion. Then you know the invasion happened, and then afterward, like months later, people realized, like, hey, wait a second, uh, this, these were all lies. And Colin Powell himself, like to save his own ass in his career is like yeah this was a blot on my career and blah 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 he tried yeah, to yeah well because he still <laughs> thought he wanted to be president or something or at least he still wanted the howard speaking gigs you know yeah uh should we talk about like the this article you brought up by michael fucking uh, in the you country? know yeah i mean we're at an hour 20 but let's just maybe get some of the poll quotes just to show like where just how intellectually bankrupt, um, you know, and to be clear, like Michael Harris, like fucking old. And I don't think anyone really reads him. He does definitely does not like represent, you know, sort of what regular black people think. No, but, uh, but you know, he gets published in the guardian. Uh, it, and he, yeah, it's, it's so this, is, he, um, the headline is called politics aside. Colin Powell. Oh, by the way, this is also just a just a beautiful little tidbit, which says everything about the kind of person he is. Um, this is from a Yahoo obituary, like the BBC News obituary. It says uh, his parents originally pronounced his name with a short O in the traditional English way, but he changed the pronunciation in honor of a U.S. Army Air Corps pilot, Colin oh, yeah. Kelly. Who was right. killed shortly after Pearl Harbor? Oh, these fucking and and I just want to say the reason that like uh, you know all the Jamal you know Jamal Bowman and whoever all the like black you know congressional black caucus types who uh, who like you know were like 
lavishing praise or, you know, doing their, uh, you know, he left a complicated legacy with Colin Powell. The reason they act like that is because they're all basically him. You know, mm-hmm. they just didn't want to go through the military, but they're all willing to do that. They all were like, yeah, okay, that's what you have to do. I'm willing to do that to get, you know, as far as I can in the system. And yeah, I mean, the, yes, that's any anyone who like hems and haws um, about Colin Powell's complicated legacy, who's like a black political figure, like is, you know, at the end of the day, willing to do the exact same shit that he did. Right. Yeah. And um, I also, before um, uh, Glenn Ford, the uh, founder of uh, co-founder of Black Agenda Report. I mean, he 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 passed away a while ago. So I just I just wanted to like give um, you know, uh, uh, praises, condolences to Glenn Ford because I do think like I I definitely want to give tip tip my hat to him because. Um, in terms of like how I approach black journalism, um, I have to give a lot of credit to Glenn Ford in, in the Black Agenda Report. And the reason why I bring out Glenn Ford because he he was the one who coined the term the black misleadership class. And now it's mostly in reference to um, uh, the sort of post-civil rights black political class who were just basically puppets for the Democratic Party and the two-party system. So he he coined the phrase "black misleadership class" in in large in large part to refer to the the post civil rights black political leadership class. But I think that term is a really good term to coin. I think it could can apply to like um, a sort of group of black pundits, mainstream pundits, and talking heads. Um, I, I I guess I would call them like the black chattering class because now I want to put that out there because um the black chattering class has been i've been noticing like doing the revisionism of of colin powell's legacy and his record and kind of painting him as like this uh black american hero like because i because i read this um the article you um you you pointed out to me peter like in the title of his politics aside colin powell was a black man in america i mean well first of all no fucking shit but that I mean, so Michael Harris is basically saying that um, uh, he was tying like the W.E.B. Du Bois's idea of the, the double consciousness of being like both an American, like you know, a national of of the, the of America, and like you know, his history of slavery, and then also a black person and being like a person whose whose ancestors were, you know, the victims of of that oppression so like you know being both a descendant of people who were oppressed in america but also living in like the the double consciousness so he was trying to like contextualize um uh colin powell's like uh a a subject of the double consciousness but like to your point peter i think like colin powell's record i don't think he's an example of double consciousness i think um powell is an example of a black person or a non-white person who um is willing to sell their soul and make that Faustian bargain with the system to benefit themselves personally. I think that's Colin Powell's record. And not just Colin Powell, but I'll also put Obama in that as well. Oh, oh, let, yeah. Since you brought up Obama, let's let's do that. Let's do this. Uh, this gem of a paragraph. Uh, yes. This is what it means to be a cog in the American machine. Whether it is Powell leading a division of the mightiest killing force on the planet or Barack Obama serving as commander-in-chief of a nation who's flying robots 
killer robots rain death and destruction on American weddings. Rising. No, Af- Afghan at, at, weddings. Sorry, Afghan weddings. Sorry. Though American weddings soon to be coming, I'm sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Rising to any level of prominence or power means becoming, quote unquote, part of an institution that tries hard to hide its already blood-stained hand. And if you are black, the journey from relative obscurity to importance is also a remarkable achievement worthy of praise. What the fuck? What what the what in the flying fuck? I, I, so it's a remarkable achievement to be a member of an oppressed group and become part of an institute, like part of like it, it, this imperial institution, and not just like a cog in a machine, but an active agent that is di- directly imp- involved yeah. in terms of pulling the trigger on like in the case of Obama actively pulling the trigger like when it comes to drone strikes and killing people overseas and then Colin Powell like being you know joint chiefs of staff and being part of the, having a high rank in the US military and in that position to to be the one to you know like be, be part of like actively killing people over like being part of an imperial machine that killed killed black and brown people overseas so that's a remarkable achievement worthy of praise so that's worthy of what 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 are we fucking praising uh oh oh what what is the praise what what are we praising uh the the fact that somebody like a black man can kill people overseas and be part of the american imperial machine is that worthy of praise because then we should extend the fucking praise to again john Yu, who's asian who wrote the legal justification to torture people in Guantanamo in CIA black sites overseas. And we should also give praise to Condoleezza Rice for being a black woman for doing the same fucking thing. And Alberto Gonzalez being Latino for doing the same fucking thing. So that's the praise, I guess. That's 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 yeah. the praise right now for these intersectional types. Right? I, yeah, uh, yes. He, he goes on to say... Um, for anyone whose last name is not Bush, Powell's rise from a mediocre C average student to the nation's highest ranking military officer and top diplomat is an oppressive inco- accomplishment. <laughs> uh, it, it is impressive, I guess. There's for, there's something impressive about it. For, yeah. a, for a black first generation American, it is the equivalent of hitting the lottery while being struck by lightning twice. Succeeding in any system specifically designed to limit black advancement requires a certain level of self-sacrifice. Is that what it was? And silence that is almost impossible to explain. Michael Harris is telling on himself right now. Yes. I mean, this is, yeah, this is, this is, this, yeah, this is like the mindset of the black chattering it's, class. It like. is, he's telling on himself because he says, imagine what it's like to bite off a tiny sliver of your own tongue. Now imagine what it's like to bite off a chunk every day. He, that's projection because Powell yeah. didn't give a shit. He clearly, right. like, he yeah, said he time and time again, he cared, he loves the army over everything. He doesn't give a shit about any other black person. Uh, you know, right. like he doesn't, he didn't care. Uh, so why are you then saying that? Um, but oh, to okay, here's what's worthy of praise. Uh, because he then says, a couple paragraphs later, you know, after talking about his ill-fated uh attempt, I guess he never actually ran for president, but he, you know, people thought he would because he, he, you know still had a proof you know he was still popular i guess or what according to 
dipshit polls, but it wasn't Powell the politician, Secretary Powell, or General Powell who garnered all that support in the black community, whatever, you know. It was the black guy from the South Bronx who married a black woman, endorsed the first black president, and repudiated the most recent anti-black president, who is considered a respected figure worthy of honor. So... Basically, the standard is um, yeah, yeah no, right. no, yes, because if Michael Harriet would have, you know, said fuck Colin Powell if he had married a white woman, but because he didn't, that's that's actually. So what does that make um, Kamala? I mean, Kamala Harris has a white husband. Yeah, well, that's why he doesn't like her, I guess. I well, it doesn't. It, I don't think. I don't think that matters. Yeah. Uh, I don't think yeah. he cares about that. I don't. I, I honestly don't even know. Oh, and and here's here's probably the uh, the 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 uh, paragraph that takes the cake, and none of that admiration was in spite of Powell's complicity in the corrupt Bush administration. For the most part, Powell and Powell's admirers still condemned the neo the policies of the nation building neoconservative cabal in which he served and supported. I don't I don't know what nation building's doing in that. Uh that's yeah. that's giving them way too much credit. They knew they weren't building shit. Um, right. But yeah. black folk also know that in the entire history of the US, there has never been a black man, not even Barack Obama, who had the unilateral authority to start an international conflict because what? because oh, they are black. They know scapegoating Colin Powell is the cause America's geopolitical failures is as laughable as blame, blaming global warming on Megan the Stallion for pushing her hot girl summer. Okay, this is like I this is something that a lot of these like black chattering class liberal types love to do. Like these kinds of um these weird like little like turns Reductio of ad absurdum. Right. <laughs> right. Like these weird like kind of logical because no one uh, First, first of all, no one's saying that like black political fi- figures are the cause of American empire. I've never heard anybody say that. I've never heard any critics say in writing or uh, speaking or whatever that like Barack Obama or any any sort of insert X black political figure is the cause of American empire. Oh, he didn't say I'm, geopolitical failures. Geopolitical whatever that fa- was. I geopolitical. Think. Well, like yeah, geopolitical. No, the thing is that like these people are agents of it, yeah. like they're willing agents of it. Also, had the who had the unilateral authority started. Well, Barack Obama as president of the U.S. for two terms and as like the the commander in chief, technically in that position, he did have the unilateral authority to start a conflict, which he kind of did with in Libya. I mean, yeah, that, that was that was his. I mean, he I, certainly didn't wait for Congress to approve it. So. Right? Yeah. I mean, him and also um, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. She definitely. I mean, what was weird with Libya is, <laughs> as fucked up as Joe Biden is, he. I think out of among that group, he was a, among the more cautious. Like he, if I remember correctly, I mean, I, yeah, I double check, but um, Joe Biden was, or, or at least he's positioning himself that way. Um, right. But considering he, that Hillary never even thought there was a thing to be ashamed about with Libya, that uh, yeah, right. yeah. But I mean, like black, like this is, and what and what I think is 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 just like really kind of disingenuous is that like the average black person during the time 
of the Bush years was not fucking with Colin Powell. I didn't really look up to him as like a hero. Like that wasn't. So I think like these kinds of pundits and chattering class types are doing a lot of revisionism to kind of paint him as this black American hero when he never was. Like he was never really like chosen among the masses of black people as like some sort of hero that represents who we are, our heritage, and who we are as a people. Like Colin Powell was never that. He kind of he was always he always was like he wanted he loved the u.s military he wanted to climb up and he did the u.s empire's dirty work because that's what he wanted i mean that's always been who he was as a person um and so he did that and there's consequences to it which is you know dead black and brown bodies across the world but hey i mean that's part of the price when you're doing the empire's dirty work so he wanted to do that he he's and um I think, you know, the blowback, I think the blowback he got from the Iraq war and like the, you know, had that infamous UN speech, I think he saw for his own interest, like, hey, look, uh, he didn't want like that to stain his fucking career. So, yeah, he distanced himself. He did distance himself from the Republican Party since then. And toward the end of his life, he uh, was very critical of Trump and he did endorse Obama. And I think it's largely because like, you know, I, I don't think you, oh, Colin Powell as a Republican was ever like the neoconservative type. I think he always he, had a conservative. Yeah, I, don't, he, I mean, no, in the sense that like he wasn't, he didn't have like independent thoughts, really. Like yeah. that was the, that, I mean, that sounds bad to say, but like considering his whole fucking thing was he's just a soldier who follows orders that's like no he doesn't have like he you know he's just he just loves america he's just trying to do what's best for america so he the idea he there isn't like a real ideology like if you read the powell doctrine or whatever like it's just it's just you know nonsense i mean it's just pablum like it doesn't mean anything clearly there isn't like oh he's asserting like that this is the thing that should be done in you know I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's like I I don't think that, you know, that time around he was necessarily like happy, but I you know, with those guys and but also because like who knows what I mean, this is only the shit that we know about. Who knows considering how evil those people are, what the shit they made him do that we don't know about. I mean, it, here's the thing that I I don't understand, and we're we're we can wrap this up. Cause yeah, we've been, yeah, um, yeah, we're running out close to an hour forty, but this is this is a good episode. I mean, what what I don't get and what I don't understand is, um, I don't see what the masses of black people gain from trying to explain away the um abuses and crimes and 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 acts of malfeasance of black political figures i don't see what black people gain collectively when obama's career is whitewashed i don't see what the masses of black people gain when somebody like colin powell his career is whitewashed and sanitized i don't see that as a gain in terms of like the collect the co- the black collective the collective of people of african descent um in the united states and and in the western hemisphere i don't see what the gain is and and that's what in um i'm gonna, I'm gonna say this i'm gonna say i'm gonna say this and then yeah we can close out um 
because I've said this before and I'll say it again because I think it's worth repeating is that like you know as somebody who's been writing about Guantanamo and police violence and gentrification for a long time now um one thing that really struck out to me during the Obama years is you know especially during the first wave of the Black Lives Matter protests the Ferguson uprising in 20 late 2014 into 2015 um because there was a Ferguson, Ferguson uprising but then also there were also protests in Baltimore as well as after the death of uh, the police killing of Freddie Gray um basically the, de- the death of Freddie Gray in police custody in Baltimore that he died in like a police 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 van in very suspicious circumstances uh, no one really fully addressed the question of what does it mean to have a black president elected twice um, with a substantial majority among the public among the American public and among the masses of black people what does it mean to have a black president elected twice for two terms but still have um, declining black wealth since to the 2008 financial crash and with no real improvement in that recently or in sight. Um, on, on top of routine police killings of black people and other forms of institutional racism, what does it mean to have a black president elected for two fucking terms, very substantial majority electorally elected, and still have forms of multiple forms of institutionalized racism against black people specifically black people i'm not talking about like you know people of color and in this context i'm talking specifically specifically about black people of african people people of african descent in america like what does it mean to have a black president who is also of african descent be president for two terms but those same um you know forms of institutionalized and systematized oppression and violence still go on um because to me like there was no gain there was no material or political gain for black people since since obama's president there's been no gain so we've had all this representation in politics and media and blah 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 blah. the more people talk about representation hyper visibility i just want to fucking scream because we have all this visibility, we have African American culture is probably the most hyper visible culture on the fucking planet. We have all this global visibility, and people love to copy our culture, copy our music, copy the way we talk, the way we dance. So hey, people love to copy all the shit that we created, um, but we have no control over it. And then, like, we still have to face like, you know, ongoing institutionalized violence and oppression against against our community and we have all this representation for what nothing nothing there's no fucking gain that we've gained from it so this is why i want to say like i don't see what black people gain from trying to sanitize the career and record records of people like colin powell barack obama condoleezza rice kamala harris and the list goes on if anything we have more to gain when we ruthlessly criticize them and ruthlessly critique their record, particularly how it impacts black people directly. I think we have more to gain when we ruthlessly analyze their record because what it will show is that these people are not working for our benefit at all. They are working for the same imperial system that is rooted in slavery and capitalism and oppression. So that's how I see Colin Powell's record and why why I why i think his legacy should be trashed because like there was no gain 
for the masses of black people collectively. There was no gain. Colin Powell himself gained. He gained pretty well in his career. And yeah, he he, he died of you know COVID and cancer and you know it's sad, but it's not sad. He, it's not I mean, sad at all. Yeah, I mean I'm um, I'm just being kind on like a human <laughs> level. But like <laughs> I don't just, know why. But uh, yeah, I'm, my sort of human <laughs> but like I mean, you know, there was no gain. There was no gain for black people for Colin Powell too. So that's why like, I I just want to say it from that perspective because I, I really hate when people like Colin Powell and Barack Obama become the face of our community. Because last time I checked, we didn't, we didn't collectively sign up to support imperialism, you know, no. like, I mean, but, but it, it is, it is saddening to see like how much like, um, it, 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 the, using the pain and suffering of black people in America to further American imperialism on a core level that really fucking offends me. And it, it does bother me to see black pundits to distort the history, the heritage and, and what, what our people have gone through still fucking go through to bolster American imperialism. We get nothing from it except more suffering, more bullshit. And then also other people across the world get more suffering. So there's no fucking gain. Like that's what that's what's annoying, and I, I I think like that's what that's that's what I have to say about Colin Powell's fucking record. This yeah, thing. I mean, I don't need. It's that I'm pretty worn down to like do the whole dance on one of the ghouls' graves when these fucking <laughs> people die. You know, unless there's a way that Kissinger can go. Kissinger's never going to die. Honestly, I think I think he actually you know, has unlocked the anti-life equation or whatever. Um, but all of them really like it, 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 I, I suppose if there's any reassuring thing, and I think what we're trying to do with this segment is when I think about like, you know, just the absolute number done on the consciousness of black America in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think that, there is perhaps I think you know that Colin Powell is held up as an aspirational figure that they told children work hard, study, stay in school, and you can be like Colin Powell. Um, hmm. I there's I don't think there's a better representation for just the absolute sickness of of you know the ruling class of this country and its ideology. I mean, it's. In any other situation, like, you know, what this man represented and what he did, it's just, it's so just incredibly obvious. And you have to be just completely detached from reality to think that this was a career, like, worthy of pride. Like, he wasn't that good. <laughs> That's what I yeah. want. Looking, going back through this, I'm like, no, he, like, wasn't that smart. He, wa- he wasn't really that gifted, like, as an officer. He just was willing to do the dirty work. He was willing to do the dirty work, and that meant he was patriotic when, honestly, like, to the degree to which there was patriotism in the Vietnam War, it was the people saying, like, no, this is wrong and needs to stop, and it's not working. Not the people that lied and covered up the terrible things that were happening. So that's not patriotism in any, like, understanding of right. the uh, the word. So... It's just, it you know, the fact that even now people still have, 
people still feel compelled to like make excuses. I mean, they're telling on themselves. They're telling on themselves because they gave up after, you know, the revolutionary spirit was, you know, pretty thoroughly suppressed. And I can understand how people would be demoralized. But this shit is just such it's such an open and shut case that I just don't even understand how it's a question. Yeah, but that's yeah, that's why this podcast exists to, you know, do these kinds of course corrections because um yeah it was really weird to see the revisionism of his career and like painting him as this but but some but hero some people yeah yeah i mean i mean yes tell it i mean in what it is quite chilling in more ways than one that they told kids they should try to be like colin powell and on that note <laughs> yeah anyway yeah that's that that's the um that's the end of this episode. We we've said enough. It's already an hour fifty. Yeah, um, I'd, yeah, like, I gotta go to bed. So yeah. So anyway, um, if you like this episode, um, yeah, please support us. patreoncom slash car Hours five dollars a month gets you bonus episodes. Um, also, paypalme slash car Hours make a one time donation to keep this podcast afloat. And yeah, if you like this episode and you want, you, you know. Um, supporting us uh, keeps it afloat so and yes follow us at Sankara Hour on at Sankara Hours on Twitter to keep up to date with what we're doing and um, yeah and also for bonus episodes uh, I'm looking into uploading uh, some of my music for bonus episodes because I play West African drumming so that's also something to look up, uh, look forward to for bonus episodes. Just to, you know, just a plug. Anyway, yeah, let's sign out. Keep the faith and stay dangerous. Peace, y'all. Take care. See ya.